Part 2 of An Episode of Fiddletown from Selected Stories by Bret Hart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Jeff Cowgill. An Episode of Fiddletown, Part 2. Athwart the long, low-studded attic, a slant sunbeam from a single small window lay filled with dancing motes, and only half illuminating the barren, dreary apartment. In the ray of the sunbeam she saw the child's glowing hair as if crowned by a red aureole, as she sat upon the floor with her exaggerated doll between her knees. She appeared to be talking to it, and it was not long before Mrs. Tretherick observed that she was rehearsing the interview of a half-hour before. She catechized the doll severely, cross-examining it in regard to the duration of its stay there, and generally on the measure of time. The imitation of Mrs. Tretherick's manner was exceedingly successful, and the conversation almost a literal reproduction, with a single exception. After she had informed the doll that she was not her mother, at the close of the interview she added, pathetically, that if she was dude, very dude, she might be her mama and love her very much. I have already hinted that Mrs. Tretherick was deficient in a sense of humor. Perhaps it was for this reason that this whole scene affected her most unpleasantly, and the conclusion sent the blood tingling to her cheek. There was something, too, inconceivably lonely in the situation. The unfurnished vacant room, the half-lights, the monstrous doll, whose very size seemed to give a pathetic significance to its speechlessness, the smallness of the one animate, self-centered figure, all these touched more or less deeply the half-poetic sensibilities of the woman. She could not help utilizing the impression as she stood there, and thought what a fine poem might be constructed from this material if the room were a little darker, the child lonelier, say, sitting beside a dead mother's byre, and the wind wailing in the turrets. And then she suddenly heard footsteps at the door below and recognized the tread of the colonel's cane. She flew swiftly down the stairs and encountered the colonel in the hall. Here she poured into his astonished ear a voluble and exaggerated statement of her discovery, and indignant recital of her wrongs. "'Don't tell me the whole thing wasn't arranged beforehand, for I know it was,' she almost screamed. "'And think,' she added, "'of the heartlessness of the wretch!' "'leaving his own child alone here in that way.' "'Well, it's a blank shame,' stammered the colonel, "'without the least idea of what he was talking about. "'In fact, utterly unable as he was to comprehend a reason "'for the woman's excitement with his estimate of her character, "'I fear he showed it more plainly than he intended. "'He stammered, expanded his chest, looked stern, gallant, tender, "'but all unintelligently.' Mrs. Tretherick, for an instant, experienced a sickening doubt of the existence of nature's imperfect affinity. "'It's of no use,' said Mrs. Tretherick, with sudden vehemence, in answer to some inaudible remark of the colonel's, and withdrawing her hand from the fevered grasp of that ardent and sympathetic man. "'It's of no use. My mind is made up. You can send for my trunk as soon as you like, but I shall stay here and confront that man with the proof of his vileness.' I will put him face to face with his infamy. I do not know whether Colonel Starbottle thoroughly appreciated the convincing proof of Tretherick's unfaithfulness and malignity afforded by the damning evidence of the existence of Tretherick's own child in his own house, 
He was dimly aware, however, of some unforeseen obstacle to the perfect expression of the infinite longing of his own sentimental nature. But before he could say anything, Carrie appeared on the landing above them, looking timidly and yet half-critically at the pair. "'That's her!' said Mrs. Tretherick excitedly. In her deepest emotions, in either verse or prose, she rose above a consideration of grammatical construction. "'No!' said the colonel, with a sudden assumption of paternal affection and jocularity that was glaringly unreal and affected. "'Oh, pretty little girl! Pretty little girl! How do you do? How are you? Well, you find yourself pretty well, do you, pretty little girl?' The colonel's impulse was also to expand his chest and swing his cane until it occurred to him that this action might be ineffective with a child of six or seven. Carrie, however, took no immediate notice of this advance, but further discomposed the chivalrous colonel by running quickly to Mrs. Tretherick and hiding herself, as if for protection, in the folds of her gown. Nevertheless, the colonel was not vanquished. Falling back into an attitude of respectful admiration, he pointed out a marvelous resemblance to the Madonna and child. Mrs. Tretherick simpered, but did not dislodge Carrie as before. There was an awkward pause for a moment, and then Mrs. Tretherick, motioning significantly to the child, said in a whisper, "'Go now. Don't come here again, but meet me tonight at the hotel.' She extended her hand, the colonel bent over it gallantly, and raising his hat, the next moment was gone. "'Well, do you think?' said Mrs. Tretherick, with an embarrassed voice and a prodigious blush, looking down and addressing the fiery curls just visible in the folds of her dress. "'Do you think you'll be good if I let you stay in here and sit with me?' "'And let me call you Mama?' queried Carrie, looking up. "'And let you call me Mama,' assented Mrs. Tretherick, with an embarrassed laugh. "'Yes,' said Carrie promptly. They entered the bedroom together. Carrie's eye instantly caught sight of the trunk. "'Are you doing away again, Mama?' she said with a quick, nervous look, and clutch at the woman's dress. "'No!' said Mrs. Tretherick, looking out the window. "'Only playin' you're doin' away,' suggested Carrie with a laugh. "'Let me play, too.' Mrs. Tretherick assented. Carrie flew into the next room and presently reappeared dragging a small trunk into which she gravely proceeded to pack her clothes. Mrs. Tretherick noticed that they were not many. A question or two regarding them brought out some further replies from the child, and before many minutes had elapsed, Mrs. Tretherick was in possession of all her earlier history. But to do this, Mrs. Tretherick had been obliged to take Carrie upon her lap, pending the most confidential disclosures. They sat thus a long time after Mrs. Tretherick had apparently ceased to be interested in Carrie's disclosures, and when lost in thought, she allowed the child to rattle on unheeded and ran her fingers through the scarlet curls. "'You don't hold me right, Mama," said Carrie at last, after one or two uneasy shiftings of position. "'Well, how should I hold you?' asked Mrs. Tretherick with a half-amused, half-embarrassed laugh. "'This way,' said Carrie, curling up into position with one arm around Mrs. Tretherick's neck and her cheek resting on her bosom. "'This way, dear.' After a little preparatory nestling, not unlike some small animal, she closed her eyes and went to sleep. For a few moments the woman sat silent, scarcely daring to breathe in that artificial attitude, and then, whether from some occult sympathy in the touch, or God best knows what, 
A sudden fancy began to thrill her. She began by remembering an old pain that she had forgotten, an old horror that she had resolutely put away all these years. She recalled days of sickness and distrust, days of an overshadowing fear, days of preparation for something that was to be prevented, that was prevented, with mortal agony and fear. She thought of a life that might have been, she dared not say had been, and wondered. It was six years ago. If it had lived, it would have been as old as Carrie. The arms which were folded loosely around the sleeping child began to tremble and tighten their clasp. And then the deep potential impulse came, and with a half-sob, half-sigh, she threw her arms out and drew the body of the sleeping child down, down, into her breast, down again and again as if she would hide it in the grave dug there years before. And the gust that shook her passed, and then, ah me, the rain. A drop or two fell upon the curls of Carrie, and she moved uneasily in her sleep. But the woman soothed her again. It was so easy to do it now. And they sat there quiet and undisturbed, so quiet that they might have seemed incorporate of the lonely silent house, the slowly declining sunbeams, and the general air of desertion and abandonment. Yet a desertion that had in it nothing of age, decay, or despair. Colonel Starbottle waited at the Fiddletown Hotel all that night in vain. And the next morning, when Mr. Tretherick returned to his husks, he found the house vacant and untenanted, except by motes and sunbeams. When it was fairly known that Mrs. Tretherick had run away, taking Mr. Tretherick's own child with her, there was some excitement and much diversity of opinion in Fiddletown. The Dutch flat intelligencer openly alluded to the forcible abduction of the child with the same freedom, and it's to be feared the same prejudice, with which it had criticized the abductor's poetry. All of Mrs. Tretherick's own sex, and perhaps a few of the opposite sex, whose distinctive quality was not, however, very strongly indicated, fully coincided in the views of the intelligencer. The majority, however, evaded the moral issue. That Mrs. Tretherick had shaken the red dust of Fiddletown from her dainty slippers was enough for them to know. They mourned the loss of the fair abductor more than her offense. They promptly rejected Tretherick as an injured husband and disconsolate father, and even went so far as to openly cast discredit on the sincerity of his grief. They reserved an ironical condolence for Colonel Starbottle, overbearing that excellent man with untimely and demonstrative sympathy in bar-rooms, saloons, and other localities not generally deemed favorable to the display of sentiment. "'She was always a skittish thing, Colonel,' said one sympathizer, with a fine affectation of gloomy concern and great readiness of illustration. "'And it's kind of natural that she'd get away some day and stampede that there colt. "'But that she should shake you, Colonel.' Yet she should just shake you, is what gets me. And they do say that you just hung around that hotel all night and payrolled them corridors and hoisted yourself up and down them stairs and meandered in and out of their piazza, and all for nothing. It was another generous and tenderly commiserating spirit that poured additional oil and wine on the colonel's wounds. 
The boys here let on that Mrs. Trithrop prevailed on you to pack your trunk and a baby over from the house to the stage office, and that the chap as did go off with her thanked you and offered you two short bits and said as how he liked your looks and would employ you again. And now you say it ain't so well. I'll tell the boys it ain't so, and I'm glad I met you, for stories do get around. Happily for Mrs. Tretherick's reputation, however, the Chinaman in Tretherick's employment, who was the only eyewitness of her flight, stated that she was unaccompanied except by the child. He further deposed that, obeying her orders, he had stopped the Sacramento coach and secured a passage for herself and child to San Francisco. It was true that Afe's testimony was of no legal value, but nobody doubted it. Even those who were skeptical of the pagan's ability to recognize the sacredness of the truth admitted his passionless, unprejudiced unconcern. But it would appear from a hitherto unrecorded passage of his veracious chronicle that herein they were mistaken. It was about six months after the disappearance of Mrs. Tretherick that Ah Fei, while working in Tretherick's lot, was hailed by two passing Chinamen. They were the ordinary mining coolies equipped with long poles and baskets for their usual pilgrimages. An animated conversation at once ensued between Ah Fei and his brother Mongolians, a conversation characterized by that usual shrill volubility and apparent animosity which was at once the delight and scorn of the intelligent Caucasian who did not understand a word of it. Such, at least, was the feeling with which Mr. Tretherick on his veranda and Colonel Starbottle, who was passing, regarded their heathenish jargon. The gallant Colonel simply kicked them out of his way. The irate Tretherick, with an oath, threw a stone at the group and dispersed them. But not before one or two slips of yellow rice paper marked with hieroglyphics were exchanged and a small parcel put into Afe's hands. When Afe opened this in the dim solitude of his kitchen, he found a little girl's apron, freshly washed, ironed, and folded. On the corner of the hem were the initials C.T. Afe tucked it away in a corner of his blouse and proceeded to wash his dishes in the sink with a smile of guileless satisfaction. Two days after this, Afe confronted his master. Uh, me no like you, Fiddletown. Me belly sick. Me go now. Mr. Tretherick violently suggested a profane locality. Afe gazed at him placidly and withdrew. Before leaving Fiddletown, however, he accidentally met Colonel Starbottle and dropped a few incoherent phrases which apparently interested that gentleman. When he concluded, the colonel handed him a letter and a twenty-dollar gold piece. If you bring me an answer, I'll double that. Sabe, John? Afe nodded. An interview equally accidental, with precisely the same result, took place between Afe and another gentleman, whom I suspect to have been the youthful editor of The Avalanche. Yet I regret to state that, after proceeding some distance on his journey, Afe calmly broke the seals of both letters, and after trying to read them upside down and sideways, finally divided them into accurate squares and, in this condition, disposed of them to a brother celestial whom he met on the road for a trifling gratuity. The agony of Colonel Starbottle on finding his wash-bill made out on the unwritten side of one of those squares, and delivered to him with his weekly clean clothes, 
and the subsequent discovery that the remaining portions of his letter were circulated by the same method from the Chinese laundry of one Feng Ti of Fiddletown, has been described to me as peculiarly affecting. Yet I am satisfied that a higher nature, rising above the levity induced by the mere contemplation of the insignificant details of this breach of trust, would find ample retributive justice in the difficulties that subsequently attended Ah Fei's pilgrimage. On the road to Sacramento he was twice playfully thrown from the top of the stagecoach by an intelligent but deeply intoxicated Caucasian, whose moral nature was shocked at riding with one addicted to opium-smoking. At Hangtown he was beaten by a passing stranger, purely an act of Christian supererogation. At Dutch Flat he was robbed by well-known hands from unknown motives. At Sacramento he was arrested on suspicion of being something or other, and discharged with a severe reprimand, possibly for not being it, and so delaying the course of justice. At San Francisco he was freely stoned by children of the public schools, but by carefully avoiding these monuments of enlightened progress, he at last reached, in comparative safety, the Chinese quarters where his abuse was confined to the police and limited by the strong arm of the law. The next day he entered the wash house of Chai Fuk as an assistant and on the following Friday was sent with a basket of clean clothes to Chai Fook's several clients. It was the usual foggy afternoon as he climbed the long windswept hill of California Street, one of those bleak, gray intervals that made the summer a misnomer to any but the liveliest San Franciscan fancy. There was no warmth of color in earth or sky, no light nor shade within or without, only one monotonous, universal, neutral tint over everything. There was a fierce unrest in the wind-whipped streets. There was a dreary, vacant quiet in the gray houses. When Afe reached the top of the hill, the mission ridge was already hidden, and the chill sea breeze made him shiver. As he put down his basket to rest himself, it is possible that to his defective intelligence and heathen experience, this God's own climate, as was called, seemed to possess but scant tenderness, softness, or mercy but it is possible that Afe illogically confounded this season with his old persecutors, the schoolchildren, who, being released from studious confinement at this hour, were generally most aggressive. So he hastened on, and turning a corner, at last stopped before a small house. It was the usual San Franciscan urban cottage. There was the little strip of cold green shrubbery before it, the chilly bare veranda, and above this, again, the grim balcony on which no one sat. Afe rang the bell. A servant appeared, glanced at his basket, and reluctantly admitted him, as if he were some necessary domestic animal. Afe silently mounted the stairs, and entering the open door of the front chamber, put down the basket, and stood passively on the threshold. A woman, who was sitting in the cold gray light of the window, with the child in her lap, rose listlessly and came toward him. Afe instantly recognized Mrs. Tretherick, but not a muscle of his immobile face changed, nor did his slant eyes lighten as he met her own placidly. She evidently did not recognize him as she began to count the clothes, but the child, curiously examining him, suddenly uttered a short, glad cry. Why, it's John, Mama! It's our old John that we had in Fiddletown! For an instant, Afe's eyes and teeth electrically lightened. The child clapped her hands and caught at his blouse. 
Then he said shortly, Midian, Afe, Alessim, Min know you? How do? Mrs. Tretherick dropped the clothes nervously and looked hard at Afe. Wanting the quick-witted instinct of affection that sharpened Carrie's perception, she even then could not distinguish him above his fellows. With a recollection of past pain and an obscure suspicion of impending danger, she asked him when he had left Fiddletown. A long a time. No likey Fiddletown. No likey Tlevelik. Likey San Flisco. Likey Washi. Likey Tali. Afe's laconics pleased Mrs. Tretherick. She did not stop to consider how much an imperfect knowledge of English added to his curt directness and sincerity. But she said, Well, don't tell anybody you've seen me, and took out her pocketbook. Afe, without looking at it, saw that it was nearly empty. Afe, without examining the apartment, saw that it was scantily furnished. Afe, without removing his eyes from blank vacancy, saw that both Mrs. Tretherick and Carrie were poorly dressed. Yet it is my duty to state that Afe's long fingers closed promptly and firmly over the half-dollar which Mrs. Tretherick extended to him. Then he began to fumble in his blouse with a series of extraordinary contortions. After a few moments he extracted from apparently no particular place a child's apron, which he laid upon the basket with the remark, A one piece wash my flattity. Then he began anew his fumblings and contortions. At last his efforts were rewarded by his producing, apparently from his right ear, a many-folded piece of tissue paper. Unwrapping this carefully, he at last disclosed two twenty-dollar gold pieces, which he handed to Mrs. Tretherick. You leave him money topside of Blulo, Fiddletown. Me find the money. Me fetch him money to you. All lighty. But I left no money on the top of the bureau, John, said Mrs. Tretherick earnestly. There must be some mistake. It belongs to some other person. Take it back, John. Arthay's brow darkened. He drew away from Mrs. Tretherick's extended hand and began hastily to gather up his basket. Me no takey it back. No, no. Bind by policeman he catchy me. He say, goddamn thief. Catchy floaty dollar. Come to jail. Me no takey back. You leave him on the top side below of Fiddletown. Me fetchy money you. Me no takey back. Mrs. Tretherick hesitated. In the confusion of her flight, she might have left the money in the manner he had said. In any event, she had no right to jeopardize this honest Chinaman's safety by refusing it. So she said, Well, very well, John, I will keep it. But you must come again and see me. Here Mrs. Tretherick hesitated with a new and sudden revelation of the fact that any man could wish to see any other than herself. And, and Carrie. Afe's face lightened. He even uttered a short ventriloquistic laugh without moving his mouth. Then shouldering his basket, he shut the door carefully and slid quietly downstairs. In the lower hall, he, however, found an unexpected difficulty in opening the front door, and, after fumbling vainly at the lock for a moment, looked around for some help or instruction. But the Irish handmaid who had let him in was contemptuously oblivious of his needs and did not appear. There occurred a mysterious and painful incident, which I shall simply record without attempting to explain. 
On the hall table, a scarf, evidently the property of the servant before alluded to, was lying. As Afe tried the lock with one hand, the other hand rested lightly on the table. Suddenly, and apparently of its own volition, the scarf began to creep slowly toward Afe's hand. From Afe's hand it began to creep up his sleeve slowly and with an insinuating snake-like motion, and then disappeared somewhere in the recesses of his blouse. Without betraying the least interest or concern in this phenomenon, Afe still repeated his experiments upon the lock. A moment later the tablecloth of red damask, moved by apparently the same mysterious impulse, slowly gathered itself under Afe's fingers and sinuously disappeared by the same hidden channel. What further mystery might have followed, I cannot say, for at this moment Afe discovered the secret of the lock and was enabled to open the door coincident with the sound of footsteps upon the kitchen stairs. Afe did not hasten his movements, but patiently shouldering his basket, closed the door carefully behind him again, and stepped forth into the thick, encompassing fog that now shrouded earth and sky. From her high casement window, Mrs. Tretherick watched Afe's figure until it disappeared in the gray cloud. In her present loneliness, she felt a keen sense of gratitude toward him, and may have ascribed to the higher emotions and the consciousness of a good deed that certain expansiveness of the chest and swelling of the bosom that was really due to the hidden presence of the scarf and tablecloth under his blouse. For Mrs. Tretherick was still poetically sensitive. As the gray fog deepened into night, she drew Carrie closer toward her, and above the prattle of the child pursued a vein of sentimental and egotistical recollection at once bitter and dangerous. The sudden apparition of Afe linked her again with her past life at Fiddletown. Over the dreary interval between, she was now wandering. A journey so piteous, willful, thorny, and useless, that it was no wonder that at last Carrie stopped suddenly in the midst of her voluble confidences to throw her small arms around the woman's neck and bid her not to cry. End of part two.